Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, (laughs) Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and the Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame outlasted North Carolina in a 44-34 victory Saturday night to move to 7-1. Next up, the Irish will host a 2-6 Navy team who has struggled but managed to play well against its toughest opponents this season. With the triple option offense coming to town, it felt like a good time to focus our conversation on Notre Dame's defense. So we asked former Irish defensive coordinator Rick Minter to come back on the podcast to share some knowledge with us. Rick, thanks for joining us. How are we doing, guys? Doing great down here in Nashville. Yeah, yeah thanks. Thanks for thanks for coming. We appreciate it. The first, I wanted to start talking about Navy a little bit, and Navy hasn't been their offense hasn't been as good as it normally is this year. They're averaging 3.69 yards per carry when, when the average is closer to five and up when the offense is sort of really humming. Is it, is it any easier to prepare for Navy's triple option when it's not working as efficiently as it should or preparing against an option offense when it's just not clicking the way it should? Well, you don't ever assume anything. I mean, other teams have played them well. They don't have the dynamic quarterback they once had about three years ago, two years ago. That helps. Uh, you know, people figure them out a little bit, but you have to start from scratch when you're playing that team and just follow your plan, follow your philosophy, and everything starts with a midline dive. They always have a fullback or up back, whatever you want to describe him as, who can burst the line of scrimmage if you're not if you're not in the way. And uh, you got to commit the interior part of your defense to stop an option number one. I know I watched uh, the Cincinnati Navy game just of a few weeks ago. And they didn't play near as well as, as uh, Marcus Freeman when he was down here and, uh, and Luke had done over the last couple of years. They got torched by Navy about four years ago in Luke's first year, like 600 yards rushing. It was un- unbelievable. And then all the way down to where by that time they were shutting them out, didn't get anything. So I know Marcus has got a good plan ready to go. But he, he like I would say, you have to stop the back first the, the midline dive back starts everything in that offense okay rick so you had at notre dame you had a couple of tours of duty as a defensive coordinator right so my question is my, my first question and i'll follow it up my question is when you scheme against navy 
Do you kind of tear up what your base defense is? Do you modify it? What do you do that's maybe different or special for that particular game? It is a little bit of tear up what you do. If you have an option philosophy, you may have that tucked into your game or, or, you know, into your playbook and into your mind. And some of those thoughts are built into all of your defense, but 90% of your regular defense can toss out the door because it's not about the other. There's so many elements that answer that question, Eric. It's one is how much can you literally practice in a two and a half day preparation week period to get ready for all the facets of that offense, starting with the midline option, the counter option, the counter dive, the tosses, even the passes out of it. How much time do you have? And uh, and I know when I was back there with Charlie, you know, 0506, you know, we didn't practice an extremely long time. We weren't an overly physical practicing team. And so our look team, which is so critical to Marcus this week, it's his demonstration team that's going to really help determine the outcome on how well the defense plays. So you got to take all that into account. I asked Charlie on Thursday for us to go out in lower pads rather than just the typical upper shells because the kids you know, aren't, aren't going to go low on you on a Thursday. Well, we needed that one extra day, if possible, uh, to low scramble, low cut off those kinds of things you have to work on constantly. So the smart teams, I'll be honest with you, take a page and practice it maybe one day in the spring where you might take a 20, 25-minute exchange team period, introduce your basics in the in fall camp, take a, take a day or two where you can steal about 20 minutes in a team period, And before you know it, you've kind of got some of the core uh, elements of how you're going to play that team laid out to the guys, just a little bit nugget at a time. And therefore, when you come to game week, you're not just, you know, barraging them with tons of things on, okay, now let's forget our defense. Here's what we have to do to win this game. Because you're usually talking about practicing Tuesday, Wednesday, and light on Thursday. So it is a modified playbook. You, it's hard to mix multiple fronts against this team and not for their good. That would be nice to be able to do for Navy's good, right? To see the three down, see the four down. It's for your own good. You got to have time to get good at something. I was a believer in trying to play them in a four down line, two tackles playing almost two twos in there, uh, two inside linebackers anchoring the B gaps with tight four, almost five techniques. And we took care of the dive. We never got hurt on the dive up the middle. And you just play the option from inside out and all the plays from inside out. If you ever try to play it from outside in, the fullback's going to hit his head on the goalpost. So my follow-up question is, did your the two head coaches that you coached for approach the game markedly different? Did Lou have a different philosophy, a different emphasis than Charlie did when you guys were getting ready for Navy? Uh, not so much because back in uh, Lou's days, uh, they weren't a midline option team. Okay. George George Chomp was the head coach back then. And what was the sidebar to that is I had interviewed with George the prior winner. I was at Ball State, but bef- maybe the year before that, before I got to Notre Dame, I interviewed with George Chomp and uh, uh, later found out he brought me over probably just to get insight into the Ball State defense that we opened against that very fall. But we beat him anyway. <laughs> and then it was an extreme pleasure in beating him whenever uh, we played him at Notre Dame. But it's, a, it's so much different when an academy chooses to be traditional. Therefore, they don't have the talent to be good enough to beat a team like Notre Dame. When they run this option, 
and, and Lou always, and this was Lou Holtz's original background and his entire offensive philosophy was option football way back in the day. Right. And he always said option is the great equalizer and it could never be more so true than playing Navy. You take these smaller, shorter, less than talented guys that Notre Dame's going to parade out there. But when they do things with execution and precision and timing and discipline and little bitty things, they equalize the field. They bring you to your knees a little bit. Rick, I'm curious. Notre Dame played against Wisconsin earlier this year and ran a little bit of a different defense against that run-heavy offense. With It was more of a 4-4 look with a one deep safety. Uh, is there anything that you can take from playing a run-heavy op- offense like Wisconsin and apply that to to playing against the triple option, or is it so much different just because of everything the option presents? Well, everything's uh, different when they in the in the in the wishbone style or the broken bone style. Now, it's you know when you're playing the spread offense, in essence, you really are playing option offense. It's different. Quarterbacks in the gun, the backs on your side. It's almost backward where you got to take care of the dive, then the quarterback, et cetera. But uh, no, it won't be a whole lot of carryover. Whenever you install a technique on defense, let's say you're playing a five technique, whether it's a 34 defense or whether it's a four, you know, four man line front, you always teach your kids about option related assignments as you install a technique. In other words, if this is what I call a five hard, uh, a heavy five, I would say five H five hard, that guy's responsibility on any veer inside block by the tackle is going to squeeze and stay down and take first threat. The backer then who has that corresponding B gap next door to him is going to see closure and he'll scrape out. Then they've swapped gaps basically. So anytime you just install basic techniques, so the option plays of the spread come into play when you're playing the bone, all the kids want to know is what's my assignment. Is it one assignment from the time the ball snapped or is it assignment based on blocking structure and blocking schemes? We were always a clear clutter. If I was a heavy five and that thing clouded down, the backer scraped over the top. They exchanged gaps, in other words. The the five or the three or the two took the first inside threat, the backer scraped and took the next threat. So some teams just say, no, you got the dive, come hell or high water, you just stay on the dive, don't care how they block you, or you got the B gap. Come hell or high water, you stick it up in there. If that tackle blocks you, you inside arm him and you control the B gap. Lots of ways of doing it. But I was a clear clutter uh, type of guy that's when things veered inside, the, the D lineman stayed down. Again, it took care of the dive. We never got hurt on the dive. I, I'll, I'll run the quarterback down, run the pitch down. And we played a rooftop safety. So it was midline dive squeeze down. If it was all veered, the tackles way down, the linebacker scrape. Here comes the wingman arc blocking and load blocking the inside linebacker. Stay under him. The next guy stay outside of him. So you have to have dive, quarterback, pitch, and alley and pass covered on every single play when you play the option offense. It's really the same way now with the spread. It's got you got to take care of the same elements. You know, um Clark probably had as good of uh at least first halves against Navy as any Brian Kelly defensive coordinator. Um, and now I don't know that Navy pops up or any of the option teams pop up on the schedule for a while down there at Vanderbilt. But have you ever talked philosophy with him as far as how he defended the option? Because he really, those weren't, those weren't, um, you know, knuckle white knuckler games when, when Clark was the defensive coordinator. 
Now, we haven't really had a chance. You know, uh, Eric, I got hired down here as an analyst, oh, about three or four weeks into the season. Uh, they were working on it, working on the paperwork, establishing the position and all this sort of thing. And I end up spending most of my time here with Jesse. Uh, I stand on the sideline in practice many times, and Clark comes over. We talk. We've talked some different issues and different philosophies, but uh, to be honest, never touched on the Navy uh, type of offense because it hasn't come up for us right. to have to play, obviously. Uh, I remember when Charlie was there, we played pretty good. First year, we played Navy. Uh, what was good one time we played Navy and Air Force in the same year. Okay. And that's always good when you do that. If you're going to have to play them, at least play them in the same year where you can play one game against the other, get some practice. More than anything, your scout team got practice. Yeah. And, we, and we put Zivakowski up on the rooftop, we called it, uh, playing up on top of the ball, about eight to 10 yards running the alley. And Zibby, while being a great, great football player, was not overly fast. Okay, so those first two or three plays back to game speed readiness. I mean, he got outran and we gave up eight yard run, 10 yard run, 20 yard run. Then all of a sudden, you know, you start getting that game speed because your scout team can never simulate. That's the problem. The scout team can never simulate the Navy game speed that they're going to have the first drive. And then all of a sudden we go play uh, Air Force, kind of take similar philosophy because you're not going to change your philosophy. You're just going to tweak it. And I put Nadu, Ninduque back there on the rooftop, and Nadu can fly now. And while he, well, to me, and I love the kid to death, Ninduque, great Notre Damer, wasn't a great college football player. He was a good college football player, wasn't a great one. But I'll tell you what, I put him on the rooftop against Air Force, and he had about 20 tackles. I remember that's that. That's the film. That's the film that uh, Marvin Lewis, uh, you know, told me one time. He says, you know, we weren't all that high on Nadu until I watched that Navy film, and I said, there's a football player. And they drafted him like fifth rounder, so and he played like seven or eight years. Yeah. And I saw him when he was down in Cincinnati and the like. But, uh, no, it's uh, – you got to have a philosophy. It's hard to junk it up. If you're a three-man line, you got to live with it. If you're a four-man line, you got to live with it. But I lived in the in the four four defense with a rooftop safety. So we played more of a post safety, and we had those two outside inverts – uh, sometimes you got to teach a kid how to do that that week. In other words, the two outside backer nickel type looking guys skied players down there because we run a rotation coverage that says if ball goes all the way away, you're going to roll the post. So it's uh, it's a lot of teaching to it, and that's why if possible, you sneak a day or two in spring fall, you know, spring and or fall camp, and try to teach those kids some of those nuggets about how you're going to play this team one day when you finally face them. Rick, which position group is in for the of the longer day against the options? Is it the defensive line or the linebackers that have the tougher assignments? I think it's the D line. They just it's like mud wrestling and getting hammered <laughs> and people chopping at your feet and you know all these types of things. I mean, it's uh, it, it, it's you you know you can lose knock on wood you can lose defensive linemen playing this kind of team because of the low backside cutoff chop blocks. And that's, again, part of the teaching. How do you teach uh, Brian Kelly's offense? Now, does, does Brian on offense do these types of things, right? They're a zone team. They're a power team, all this kind of stuff. They've got good players. But how many of them really do execute low scramble cutoff blocks? I mean, like be, a, be about 6'1", 6'2". Hell, all their guys are 6'7", right? right? They can't even get down there. And uh, so your look team has the hardest trouble. You have to simulate cut drills in individuals because you don't really want to even allow your scout team to cut your defensive lineman. I mean, right. some of them will be trying hard 
but you don't want them to. So you simulate it and, and you just try to break it all down part to whole. Because if everybody comes together and plays their role to perfection, it's a piece of cake because you got better players than they do. It's just a matter of athletics. But they can make you look foolish. If you do not take away the inside to the next gap, to the next gap, to the next gap, that fullback has already got 10 yards on you. And if they do that, then the other element, remember, about the whole game, it's the number of drives. It's how many times they'll go for it on fourth down and make it a four-down set almost every single time. They have nothing to lose. They're not expected to beat the Irish. So they're going to pull out all stops, and anytime it gets anywhere close to midfield, you're going to get a four-down territory type operation. So they'll have their hands full. But I really believe Marcus is, is the right guy at the right moment if he really brings what they begin to do at Cincinnati against Navy, which really was a real shutdown effort. And then uh, this year, for some reason, whether it's Marcus is not there or Mike Trestle don't do things quite the same, I don't know that. They didn't look as sharp. I mean, they maybe ran the ball on a little bit, got that fullback. Threw going. the ball a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a clean operation. I was glad to see them not get penalized in the polls because I believe all your press and particularly all your coaches' polls, anytime you play a, 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 an academy, it's, it's kind of like you get a mulligan. You know, they know those teams are hard to play. They know that, prep, you know, preparing for that option is difficult. So they, you know, they got out of it okay. And as I know, Notre Dame will. But uh, the thing to do is to get up on these guys. You know, what few drives you get in the first half, if Brian can score and make that thing 21 to nothing or 21 to seven, that second half is an entirely different kind of ball game than what, uh, you know, a real knockdown drag out. If you fall behind, look out because it's just hard to stop them and your offense then don't get enough drives. You know, they're going to get about eight. You know, if you play really good, you'll, you'll give your offense the ball about eight to nine times. If you don't play very good, you might not give it to them that many times. Rick, um, just in a broader sense with Marcus, you know, when he came to town and started recruiting, you know, he, he probably didn't have to pay for a hamburger or any restaurant he went to. And uh, I think after the North Carolina game, there were people grumbling about what's going on. Why is this defense more dominant? So my question to you is how, how good of a job do you think he is doing as a first-year coordinator, and how difficult is it playing a new scheme as a first-year coordinator? It's difficult on the players. You know, when uh, when Clark was there, he took over for Elko. I remember yeah. when Brian changed coordinators, the, the role came open when Mike left to go to A&M, and the one determining factor – of Clark probably getting the job other than very, very impressive young man, be honest with you. It was continuity. I mean, Brian really liked what Elko did and look what AM's doing, of course. And then uh, Clark just took that ride over, put his own stamp on it and did a great job. So for four years, they had that same defense going on. Now you need to bring a guy in like Marcus, you know, and because he's a rising star in the business. But to put a complete new scheme in, yeah, it, it's taking time, I'm sure. The players are having fun with it, but it's got holes in it every now and then. Marcus is much more multiple. He's introduced the three-man line and the pass rushing and the stunning game to Notre Dame that they didn't do a whole lot under the previous two guys. They were all four-down guys almost all the time. When Jesse put in some three-man line schemes down here at Vanderbilt, Clark did it with an open mind and say, yeah, that's cool. That's good. I've never been around the three-man line. That's his, that was his response. So, so now Marcus comes in with the plethora of looks on defense 
And they've been hit at times in passing down fronts with rundown calls. So they've given up at times a few more rushing yards than you would have thought, but they're trying to get after the quarterback. You know, he's about takeaways and, and preventing. So I think, you know, as I can say for a coordinator who did many a job down through the years for two or more years, that first year, yeah, it's tough. The second year, things flow so much simpler and easier and brighter for the guys. So I know there's bright days ahead. Uh, I know the, the, the room for error doesn't exist at Notre Dame. You know, it's not a trial and error place. you got to produce. But I thought he's done a good job. If you look at their record, they're playing good enough to win. And as they grow and adjust, keep on winning. Rick, Marcus Freeman has had a tougher job in the last couple of weeks with, with Kyle Hamilton being out and injured. I'm curious, when you lose someone as talented as he is, as a, an All-American safety that can cover so much ground, how much of a drop-off is fair to sort of expect from a defense that maybe has to change some things uh, without the, that kind of a star player in the, in the secondary? Well, one time, a lot of times, it's not just uh, the talent alone that you lose. Great player, probably an All-American type kid. You lose leadership. You lose your quarterback. You lose your voice. You lose your confidence. Uh, so that's the thing that you lose back there many times. You just have to have as much confidence in your offensive quarterback as you do perhaps your guy who runs the secondary for you on the back end, particularly this day and age with tempo teams. You know, it used to be a day every day you could take, you could go put the defense back in the huddle. They could chat, you know, chit chat, argue whatever with each other for about 15 seconds and then, you know, get their stuff together. But one of the primary reasons that t- people go no huddle and tempo. And, and it's just looked at from an offensive viewpoint is to destroy defensive unity. It never allows those guys to get back in there and hold hands and pat each other and say, come on now, settle down. This is what's going to happen here. Uh, so when you lose that leader who's on the field, probably not huddling up a whole lot, but he's got that voice and that diction and that direction and that eye of confidence, it shakes the other guys a little bit. Somebody else has to rise up and take the reins. So uh, it happens at the linebacker level if you lose a, a key player, and it happens on the secondary guy. Because believe it or not, we got 11 guys out there, but you got one dude on the back end who runs everything, and you probably have a linebacker, maybe two, who control the entire front seven with their calls. He's the captain-like guy. And if you ever lose those guys, it's not about just his talent you're losing. You lose a lot of other things. And Marcus has had to go through, uh, as a defensive coordinator, you know, unlike uh, Clark Cat, Clark probably was the defense coordinator of the same Notre Dame quarterback for what three years, right? Ian Book, he had a great run. Clark's had to be there while BK has been struggling a little bit, and Tommy Reese to find the right magic on offense. So it hasn't been pretty all together all the time, but they've hung in there and outside that UC game, which could have gone either way at faction, you know, at uh, spots in that game. But uh, give UC credit for doing it on the road. But I know it was an emotional game for everybody involved. Everybody's kind of connected to Cincinnati or Notre Dame right there in that game. But uh, uh, no, that would be a hard thing to overcome, uh, losing a star guy and making someone else not just learn how to play a half field technique, third technique, but to be the quarterback and the leader of the defense on the back end. I think it would have softened the blow for Marcus had – Jeremiah Wusu koromoa decided he wanted to hang around for another year because he's amazing and he allowed them to, you know, not have to play nickel if they didn't want to. He could be the nickel back. They don't have anything like that healthy on their roster right now. 
Uh, they're recruiting to that, but they don't have anything healthy on their roster. I, I know that when you came in, I think you were hamstrung by your personnel to where yeah. there were certain packages you couldn't run. Right. And as it would have been nice to it would have been nice to have old Justin Tuck come back one more year now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. So, but I mean, as a coordinator, how do you work around that when you know the offensive coordinator knows where your soft spots are? How do you make up for that schematically or personnel-wise? How do you deal with that? Because I think you guys couldn't play nickel, was my memory of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, it would be it would be scary for people to really know uh, how down the talent was on the defensive side of the ball back in 0506 when we did take over from Ty. And uh, that first year, Charlie took over a loaded offensive team. We took over three starters on defense. Uh, you know, I'll be honest, if certain players at Notre Dame had other coaches been there at that time, they might not have even taken some of the guys they ended up taking there. It wasn't overly, overly talented. It wasn't near matching the type level of player that we had when I was there in 92, 93. We just had to make do. It's like Lou used to always say, don't tell me how rocky the sea is. Just bring home the ship. Well, you're marrying into a family with children. Some of them's got scars. Some of them's got freckles. Some of them are short and some of them are tall. And uh, you got to take those guys and mold them and make them into your image. And while and that's what disappointed me, we did a pretty good job hanging in there in 05. Then we brought back eight starters and we really did a good job, still hamstrung. The, the good news about the 05, 06, when I lost uh, Corey Mays and uh, 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 Brandon, the other linebacker, and uh, yeah, Brandon Hoyt, I had to take Mo Crumb, who was an undersized linebacker to begin with and put him at Mike linebacker and look and Charlie looked at me one day who's going to be your Mike I said it's going to be Mo he says well I can't tell you what he says live on air but he <laughs> said you're nuts Mo's not good enough to play inside linebacker and I say I, I, I beg to differ Mo's a ball player and he can play we can protect him with our movements and everything so we didn't have a wheel backer we had to steal this uh, uh, Thomas the backup running back over there and try to put make a wheel backer out of him etc but uh, you don't always have the pieces you want. And uh, we, I always tell coaches, you know, you don't like what you have. Let's recruit a little bit better when the winter, com- you know, when the winter time comes. But you got to play what's dealt right now. You might lose key players. It's all part of attrition and, and running and being a great leader is don't let that get you down. This next man up mentality has always got to be existence. And uh, I know Marcus will find a way to have done that. And Brian's done that on offense. Hell, I saw him play two or three quarterbacks in one game, you know, so they haven't felt like they found all the right answers. They're just making do with what's been dealt to them. And uh, they, they're doing well. I mean, this is a year. This is not the best Notre Dame team of all time, th- this current team. We know that. But they've got one loss. They're in the top ten. They're going to play a New Year's Day Bowl. Uh, they can beat everybody left on their schedule. They'll get past this game. It may or may not be ugly, you know, slow and all that kind of stuff. But they'll get by it. And they'll end up in a New Year's Day Bowl game and, and rebuild for next year, Marcus's second year. And I hope Brian goes for a long time there because he's got a good setup. He's in a great place. He's mentally in a great place on how he's running the team. He's hiring good people. And uh, they'll, they'll keep getting better players. 
Rick, in, in three of the last four games, Notre Dame has given up points late in the half, late in the first half on drives that started with less than two minutes left. I, I'm curious, as a, as a coordinator, what is the key to sort of evaluating those situations and, and sort of improving uh, upon them to maybe limit those opportunities for opposing offenses? Those are situational football. It really is. And I know that Brian talks and does and executes a situational football, as does Marcus, but it does require – an adequate amount of time. That two-minute drill can win or lose for you. It may not cost them the game, but it, it costs them points, and then points can cost them the game. You know, we were involved in a situation out here last Saturday night, tremendously ugly. We tried to fake a field goal with 15, 20 seconds to go, didn't work, put the defense out there, and in about two plays, they throw a Hail Mary and score a touchdown. I mean, same thing. you got to work that situation, and you got to make sure your kids and the coaches – uh, is when, when, when points are allowed in situations, the, the coach has to first look at himself, Brian and then Marcus, and say, are we adequately preparing our guys enough time in practice, not just passing, not just say, okay, we did a two-minute drill today, but, I mean, really stop and take the time to analyze what happened, what are our calls. It's, all, it's always, is it the coach, is it the player, is it the scheme? And you have to analyze all of them honestly. And don't ever throw your players under the bus. They all you got. And uh, so teach those guys better or do things they can do, but make sure you look at your, yourself hard first as a coach. And I know those guys do. And, uh, but you got to commit time and, and, and practice, you know, Bill Belichick, they say is always the best situational football coach in the country. And that's all that is. Two minutes is a situation and they spend tons of time on it. Uh, four minute is a situation uh, playing with no timeouts, playing with timeouts. How do you, I mean, everything, and I, and I know that because I worked for Charlie. Charlie was pretty good about situational football. And, uh, and then we scrimmaged against the Patriots when I was with the Eagles. Went up there and spent a whole week. It was amazing watching Bill integrate situations into every practice. he just stop and say, all right, guys, here's the deal. Here's the situation. Boom, 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 boom. All right, here we go. We've got about four plays here. And, and over time, he does that so much. Those, that's why they say that the Patriots are the best prepared situational football team probably of all time. Same with Alabama. They're all good. And uh, if it's not working, then they got to get it fixed. You know, it's, it's not ever good. What led to that? What led to them being on the field with two minutes to go? Was it, uh, you know, three and out by the offense? Was it a time to slow the game down at that time? I don't know all those things. I'm not pointing any fingers. But sometimes you can avoid those situations. Sometimes you just score a touchdown. You got two minutes to go. Defense get back out there and hold them. And then they score. So you got to put time into it. And I know they do. You got to put thought into it. And I know they do. But you got to be self-critical of what are you doing? How are you doing? Are we committing enough time to it? And uh, where was the breakdown and why? Rick, last one from me. I know that you're busy with your own prep being an analyst and busy spoiling your grandkids. But of what you've seen of Notre Dame, putting your defensive coordinator hat on, what scares you the most? Facing Jack Cohn, facing Tyler Buckner, or facing both of them? All things equal. If you had a chance to play the freshman enough to value, you know, get him better down the road, you'd be better off. The other guy is a journeyman. You know, he's nothing unique, nothing special. Otherwise, he'd stay at Wisconsin. And uh, so it doesn't scare me at the quarterback position. But they are great run blockers. They've got good running backs. They've got receivers out there. They've got tremendous tight ends. So they have an offense that, that is to be feared, but not necessarily 
uh, a quarterback that you just line up and are scared of every time he takes a snap that he's going to, you know, whiz, you know, whiz one by you all the time. All right, Rick. Well, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking some time today to catch up with us and, and sharing your insight with us. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Go Irish. All right. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame Navy. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under 200 rushing yards for Navy. Well, they've been under 200 in four out of their eight games and in a fifth game against SMU, I think it was, or it was Houston, they got 202, so they were just over. Uh, Air Force crushed them. Uh, You know, it's so weird not seeing them in the top five and or or even in the top two or three in rushing offense. I'm going to say, I mean, this is a gut feeling just because of Marcus's success against uh, triple option at Cincinnati after the first time. So I'll say under. Yeah, I'm going to go under as well. I think Navy has surprisingly uh, not hit 200 yards in some games this year. Um, And I don't, I don't think it has a difference maker in its option attack. Um, Notre Dame's success against Wisconsin's running attack gives me confidence. Although, as Rick Minter said, it's not necessarily the same thing, but I think it gives me confidence in Notre Dame's ability to focus in on a one-dimensional offense and sort of shut 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 down that one dimension. So I think uh, even though Notre Dame gave up some rushing yards last week against North Carolina, that's obviously a much different offense as well. Um, I will predict under for 200 rushing yards for Navy. Next one, will Notre Dame force a turnover? Um, Navy doesn't commit a lot of them, and Notre Dame forces a lot of them. So it's uh, – I think Notre Dame's defensive line will be powerful enough at, at some point to to force a turnover. So I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I'm in agreement with yes. I uh... – I feel like maybe he's going to be in a situation where it feels pressure to get sort of creative and do something out of his comfort zone that maybe will backfire. So maybe that's how uh, Notre Dame ends up getting a turnover from, from the midshipmen. But like you said, Navy has only turned it over seven times this season. Notre Dame has forced 18 turnovers. Um, so one of these two um, strong units in terms of protecting the football and, and, and uh, taking away the football will have to come through. And uh, I, I think Notre Dame will win that one. Next one is over under 65 and a half receiving yards for Lorenzo Styles. Some of that's going to be tied into how many snaps Braden Lindsay gets. And so that we haven't had the Thursday catch-up report, you know, going into the week, there was optimism that Braden Lindsay would be able to practice uh, the full week. He was going through concussion protocol. I still think Styles is going to be over. I, I think he's been a revelation the last two games. He's led them in receiving yards each of the last two games. He gets a lot of yards after the catch. I could see that happening against Navy. And, and with very, you know, with not a lot being targeted this year, he's uh, he's climbing the freshman ladder in terms of freshman wide receivers under Brian Kelly. He's fourth right now, about to be third in terms of catches in a season. So I just don't think there's any 
turning back with him. I, I think he's going to be part of this offense moving forward. So over. Yeah. I, I'm going to, I'll keep the agreements coming uh, on this one. It, although it sounds at least the initial report from Brian Kelly was sort of optimistic in terms of brain Lindsay being able to play this weekend. I, I still don't think that Lorenzo styles needs a ton of opportunities to be productive. Um, in the last two games, he has three catches for 57 yards against USC and three catches for 74 yards against North Carolina. Um, so I, I will go over and the yards after the catch is like a, the big selling point to me. Like I, I don't think he needs a lot of catches to get those yards. Um, and I think he will be able to do some, some things uh, after the catch to, to, to eat up those yards and quickly get over the 65 and a half receiving yards against Navy. Next one, more tackles, J.D. Bertrand and Drew White or Notre Dame starting defensive line? We don't have 2020 as a cheat sheet since they didn't play last year. Right. Um, I know that Drew White is really good against the option. He was very good. He had 10 tackles in 2019. He had six in kind of his breakout performance, subbing in for Drew Tranquil in 2018. But there's just too many defensive linemen that are going to get that are going to make plays for Notre Dame. And, and so I think the defensive line collectively, if you have the starters and the guys that rotate in, then I'm going D line. Well, I, I, I was just considering the starters. So you just get four or you don't get, you don't get eight guys. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So if I just have four, then I will flip my prediction and go with the Bertrand white combination. Cause white's going to get a bunch. Yeah, I, 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 we are in agreement again here. Once I clarified that one, I wanted to, I really wanted to convince myself into taking the defensive line, and I, and I think there's a chance that they could win that battle because I, do, I do think Jason Adamalola and Isaiah Foskey and Myron Tangavailoa Moser are going to be very disruptive players against the option. Um, but I just, I couldn't get myself to do it because not only White being having a good history against the option, but also. J.D. Bertrand just is always in, in the area of making tackles, and I we haven't seen him play against the option yet, but I just have a hunch that he's going to be probably be pretty good against that too. So um, I will I am taking Bertrand and White to combine for more tackles than Notre Dame's starting defensive line. Next one, over under 37 minutes of possession for Navy. Well, they've been over that four out of their last five games. Um, you know, when Notre Dame wants to do the – faster tempo, but they're not all Miss fast tempo. <laughs> they're just, you know, a little bit faster. It's like if you are old enough to remember, um, you know, vinyl records, you have 33 and a third, 45 and 78. I mean, they're not on 78. They're on 45 when they go fast. And Tyler's probably rolling his eyes and goes, what does that just mean? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I've never played a record. Uh, <laughs> I, can, I can say that with confidence. You know, behind me, I don't know if you can see, there's over 200 LPs, and I have a turntable over in my office. So that's how old school I am. But uh, anyways, uh, back to the answer here. <laughs> um I think Notre Dame is going to possess the ball. I think their running game is good enough now. Now, Navy's run defense is decent, but I think Notre Dame will know that it needs to kind of not let Navy have the ball for 40 minutes. So I, I'll, I'll say it'll be under. 
All right. We finally came to a disagreement. I, I went with over. I, I, I'm i sort of in the same camp where I think that I'm just not – Notre Dame certainly is playing with more tempo, but they're not like the – they're not – the series and drives are still lasting a lot of plays. They're not necessarily striking for long, long plays, so it's not really changing too much in terms of the time of possession. And I think they will be cognizant of that against Navy, but I do think that Navy will still be able to control the ball enough to get over 37 minutes this game. And then lastly, what is your final score prediction for Notre Dame Navy? Well, I'll tell you, Navy's been once they got their September shakes out, you know, that Marshall just trucked them yeah. in the opener. But, you know, against the good teams that they played were all one score games. Houston, SMU, and Cincinnati. They beat UCF. Um, but I think Notre Dame has enough familiarity there. So I'm going to say Notre Dame 34, Navy 17. All right. We are in the same ballpark. I have Notre Dame 38, Navy 17. Um, so okay. we'll see. Uh, we'll see if if they if they, if they end up scoring 17 exactly, that would be uh, we would look pretty smart. But I, we will, we'll see who comes closer uh, with Notre Dame scoring effort. All right. Now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is at Irish from IrishFan102. Has Kyle Hamilton played his last game in a Notre Dame uniform? I don't think so. And Brian Kelly was asked that on Monday, and he doesn't think so either. You know, as long as there's healing taking place, I think he would want to come back and play. Um, I just think that's what Kyle Hamilton would want to do. He's got great people advising him. Brian Kelly said he's good with it, whatever he decides. But I think he would want to come back and play um, and leave his stamp on this program. Yeah, I'm not sure which way I'm leaning more currently. I'm not convinced of either one yet, and I'm I'm not necessarily sure if, Kyle Hamilton has, has made a decision yet as he goes through the rehab process with his knee. Um, my my strongest conviction is that if he does decide to sit out, that he'll announce it on his podcast. So I've been making sure to listen to the podcast as soon as I possibly can uh, when it gets posted, um, just in case that is ha- that is uh, where he announces his decision or what what is going to happen with his future. I found it interesting that he hasn't really talked about it much at all on there yet. They talked a lot about this week. Um, on the Inside the Garage podcast, make sure I say the name of the podcast. Uh, they were talking about like what he was doing during the game in terms of like helping out as a coach and and listening in with a, uh, uh, an earpiece to, to some of the communications and trying to help out some of the guys. So that was a fun conversation, but he hasn't really touched on like how his knee's doing and all that stuff yet. So I'm, I'm sort of curious uh, how it all plays out. So, I, I mean, I don't know that I – I certainly wouldn't blame him if he decided not to. I, I think uh, I, I would understand that decision, but I, I I don't know that he has made that decision yet either. So I'm curious to see how it plays out. I will say this: if it, Kyron Williams, there's no way they're keeping him off the field. <laughs> he would like he would fake a medical report to get back onto the field, and that's not that's not saying that anybody that decides not to is making the wrong decision. Kyle's a really smart guy um and he'll make a great decision yeah and and it's it, like 
in this current situation, there's a lot more t- money on the table right now for Kyle Hamilton than there is for Kyron Williams. Kyron Williams or anybody think, else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Avon Thibodeau. <laughs> yeah, anyone. Yeah, there's, there's not that many people that are in the same sort of conversation that Kyle Hamilton is right now. Uh, next question is from at Drew Brennan 77. Didn't see any questions about Chris Tyree in the press conference. I found it strange that he was back on kickoffs, but then Logan Diggs got the second team running back reps. Is Chris Tyree still hurt? Hopeful that he can get back into full rotation this week. He is so dynamic. I thought about following up. John Fennerin of the AP generally asks the injury questions. Now he's usurped that role from me and I'm happy to (laughs) give it up. Uh, But he, Brian was asked about it Saturday night and gave a pretty complete answer. You know, they're, they were trying to kind of get him warmed up on kickoffs. I think uh, the thought of running straight ahead rather than a lot of cuts was maybe the first step toward, um, you know, kind of testing that. We'll get a better update on Thursday as to what Tyree's role would be. I'm not sure that he ever was going to return one. I mean, I think he was either <laughs> going to allow a touchback or he was going to fair catch it. So I, I'm, I'm really not sure what was accomplished with that um, strategy because you had Lorenzo styles who could return kickoffs for you. If you wanted to be a little bit more dynamic there. Uh, but my sense is that he's going to work his way in. And the fact that Diggs is playing so well and Kyron is straight, you know, straight arming everybody, stiff arming everybody. You know, there's not a huge urgency to get him back on the field. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't, I, I didn't think. Uh, I thought Brian Kelly's answer uh, after the game that they were sort of trying to get him back into the the swing of things and get his conditioning level up to where it needed to be, um, and sort of taking the next step. It, it hopefully this week for the Navy game. I felt like, I mean, we're not going to get whatever he would say Monday probably wasn't going to give us much insight into what what has happened this week because not much has happened this week yet. And I think we'll get a clearer picture on Thursday. Now he might not give us too much information of what exactly it's going to look like. But um, I think I'm I'm certain that Notre Dame had a good good understanding that there probably weren't going to be many kicks for him to return against North Carolina because their kicker was good enough to to kick kick touchbacks with with uh, regularity. Um, so it was a way to sort of get him out there and get him um, some action. And he was going pretty – he was he was not limited in any way to my eye in pregame warm-ups. So I think they have a, a, a sense that he could do it if they needed him to. And I think they probably wasn't – they weren't necessarily willing to push him um, as a running back quite yet, um, partially because they're confident in what Logan Diggs is doing. Um, so I think uh, I think there's a chance we see him this week. A little bit more against Navy, but uh, we'll find out more later in this week if that is a realistic possibility. Next question is from Andrew Barlow at Barl Andrew. With the cryptic mentions of the possibility that left tackle Blake Fisher might return this season, does the four-game freebie that players get for a redshirt apply to late-season games? If so, has he returned to practice yet? Um, it does apply to late-season games. So, up until a few years ago when they changed the redshirt rule, I think it was Myron Tangavaloa Moses' sophomore year. Um, you you had redshirts where you couldn't play at all, and then you had injury redshirts. And if you were injured, you could only have played in three games, and it had to be in the first half of the season. So now the rule is medical or non-medical redshirts, 
the limit is four games, and it can be anywhere in the season. So, yes, he could come back and still redshirt. Now, here's the bad news, Andrew. I don't think he's going to use that fifth year, and he may not use his fourth because he's really, really good. Uh, but it's nice to have that in case he wanted to do it. And some people have, um, you know, played a more. Liam Meikenberg could have left after four years instead of playing a fifth. But I think Blake Fisher will probably not use that redshirt year anyways. Has he returned to practice yet? When I asked Brian Kelly about it, he had not. Uh, but he was ahead of schedule, and they are not going to push it because they are in a good position right now with Joe Alt playing, and they want to get um, Blake fully healed before they decide to put him back on the field. I'm sure he's chopping at the bit, though. Yeah, and, and for anyone who doesn't know what Andrew was referring to, Blake Fisher tweeted something that said soon. It was a picture of himself that said soon, so I think people thought that he might be coming back to play soon, and Brian Kelly downplayed that. Um, when when you asked him about it, I, I think it was probably just Blake getting excited about making progress in his rehab, um, which is ahead of schedule. Um, but it, I, and I imagine knowing Blake Fisher's social media usage, we will probably know when he's back in practice. He'll probably he'll probably let us know about that as well. Uh, so he's still recruiting. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that is that is true. Um, so, but yeah, like you mentioned, like in this hypothetical, Blake Fisher could play in the last two games of the regular season and the bowl game, if any doesn't make the playoff and still be able to redshirt. Um, the next uh, next thing I have for us is a, a two similar questions that I thought we could sort of tackle at once. One was from at Alan Sturgill. Why doesn't Ky- Kyron Williams get more Heisman talk? He had the best performance this past weekend, yet all the talk is about some back at Michigan State. And then an email from Ken in Pensacola. Don't you think now – that with Kyron Williams' strong performance against North Carolina, that he ought to at least be on the ballot for the Heisman Trophy? Well, let me start with the second question there, Ken's question about on the ballot. Everybody's on the ballot. There's not – it's not multiple choice. You can vote for whoever you want to, and you could be – you could vote for Joe Alt if you wanted to. (laughs) Um, I, I voted for Quentin Nelson on my ballot his last year at Notre Dame. I voted him third. And because I thought he was one of the three best football players in America. Um, so there's not a restriction there. As far as Kyron Williams getting talk about Heisman and so forth, um, you know, they have, um, you can bet on that stuff in Vegas. And there's certain players that are on the board. And early in the season, Kyron was until the offensive line struggled mightily. Jack Cohn was too. And then they both, fell off the board. Neither one of us on the board this week. So you can't bet on them this week. Why would other people be ahead of them? Well, or, or ahead of Kyron? Well, Kyron right now is 33rd in the country in rushing yards and 22nd in all-purpose yards. So that's, I mean, he moved up to the point where a 1,000-yard season is realistic for the second year in a row. But, you know, Kenneth, Walker the third at Michigan State is the leading rusher in the country. Um, not quite double the yards per game that Kyron has, but but substantially more. He had five touchdowns in a game against a team that had given up three rushing touchdowns all season. And they're a team that's jumped into the top, will jump 
maybe into the top four in tonight's college football playoff rankings. They're certainly a top five team. Um, so you have to be realistic and not just look at it through your fan eyes. Kyron Williams means so much to this program that's not going to go into the Heisman voting process for 95% of the voters because they don't see that. And he doesn't have big games left to get that. Even if he had 250 yards against Georgia Tech, people right. say, well, it's Georgia Tech. Right. Um, Kenneth Walker had his yards on a big stage, and that's what people are going to be watching. Guys like Caleb Williams and some of the other quarterbacks. There's not a lot of running backs that are in, in the mix. You know, Bijan Robinson was the flavor of the week when they played Oklahoma because that was a big game at that time. Uh, and he's kind of faded, not because he's not good. He's seventh in the country in rushing, but because they don't have big games, many big games left, and and Texas isn't really very good. So uh, if, if the Heisman voting were maybe after the bowl games and Kyron had a great bowl game, then maybe maybe he would have – more of a shot, but he's a terrific football player. That's just not in a position. I don't think to compete for the Heisman this year. Yeah. I'm in agreement with you there. I was, I was dismissive of the idea when Kenny actually emailed me following the USC game about Kyron Williams being a Heisman candidate. And uh, I, I I would describe myself as less dismissive now, but I still don't think it's very realistic. Um, Like you said, Kyron Williams is a great player. Um, but if you don't watch Notre Dame football, you don't, we won't have an appreciation for everything else he does that doesn't show up necessarily in the statistics and the statistics matter. I mean, he rushed for fewer than 50 yards in three of the games this season. And two of those were against Wisconsin and Cincinnati when people were paying attention to Notre Dame, maybe more than at any other point this season. Um, and, and Kenneth Walker, the third, like you said, he had, he had his big game and he's had other big games. Um, against Michigan with five touchdowns and 197 rushing yards. And Michigan has a solid run defense. So they're not really in the same neighborhood in terms of production, even if Kyron Williams, if you want to say he's more talented, I think you could maybe make that argument. But the way the seasons they're having aren't necessarily that comparable. And and Michigan State's offense is probably better set up for him to do that than, than what Notre Dame's offense was set up for Kyron Williams at the start of the season. So it's tough because you got to be – like you mentioned with the balloting process, you need to be in the eyes of the whoever is voting one of the top three players in the country. Um, and so that's not an easy conversation, I don't think, for Kyron Williams to break into unless he has sort of jaw-dropping kind of statistical numbers. Um, I think it's, it's hard for many running backs to be able to get in that conversation. And when Kenneth Walker is sort of going to be the de facto running back in that conversation, I think it would be hard to get a second running back in there too. But if any year that's going to happen, it could be this year because the field is, is wide open. So um, there are opportunities to make late pushes, but Notre Dame, like you mentioned as well, they don't have the marquee games on the schedule left at the end of this regular season to sort of push Kyron into that conversation. Next question is from at BFRA underscore Marie. Fundamentals were really poor on Saturday night. Can you make much improvement on fundamentals during a week in the season, or does most of that improvement have to happen in the offseason? Also, with the personnel we have on defense, do you think we should be playing more zone? Well, I know that Marie's question is based on the rest of the regular season and not this week. So I, I think, you know, more zone against Navy. Right. Doesn't, doesn't really matter. Both parts of this <laughs> yeah. question. She's looking ahead to Virginia 
and Georgia Tech and Stanford. I think Notre Dame has played more zone than I think they went into the year thinking they were going to be playing. And I don't think it's a bad idea to mix that in. Can you get better fundamentally in a week? I think you can always get get better at fundamentals. I think Navy definitely throws off your continuity in that sense and that you go from North Carolina to Navy to Virginia, and it would be better to play North Carolina and Virginia back-to-back unless it means you get Kyle Hamilton back for Virginia, then, then the sequencing is is really good. Here's here's what I think is maybe a bigger problem than fundamentals, and Tyler can tear this up if he wants to. Um, I think what what happened in the USC game, especially with without Kyle Hamilton, is people have kind of figured out if they have a balanced enough offense, they can get Notre Dame to commit to nickel because they don't have a rover that can do that. And then if they're in nickel, you can run against them. If they don't um, commit to nickel, then you have some mismatches with your slot receiver against their rover. You know, you didn't have that with Jeremiah Wusu kormoa And I think to a certain extent, J.D. Bertrand can be somebody that can be exploited a little bit in the passing game against really fast tight ends, you know, elite tight ends, especially with as many reps as he's playing because he's getting worn down. I think this defense with Maris Leafau would look different. Um, And so I think part of the schematic being kind of broken schematically a little bit there is that um, you're lunging, you know, you're not as good against the run. So it looks like you're fundamentally out of place and you may not be in place just because of the scheme you're playing. Um, I don't know that Stanford could exploit that. I'm not even sure Virginia could because their running game isn't good enough. Georgia Tech may be a bigger problem in that particular dilemma. Virginia is going to be a pain in the butt just because they're so good at throwing the ball. And it does look like their quarterback who got hurt in the BYU game thought his rib was broken is probably going to be able to play against Notre Dame with a jacket without a broken rib. Uh, They have a bye week to heal him up. Brennan Armstrong, they're the number two pass offense in the country. So that's a long answer, but that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're on to something in terms of getting Notre Dame to – Notre Dame isn't isn't confident enough in its secondary or its rover position, however you want to describe it, to be able to to play against a spread offense that can throw the ball around – um, without having to bring extra defensive backs on the field. And then when they do that, um, they opposing teams will try to run the football. Now, I know some people Especially want Especially if it's a corner and not a third safety. Right. Out of Hamilton, you can't put that third safety on the field. No, yeah, no. And, I mean, when you're third – and then when there is a third safety, it's Isaiah Pryor, who is a rover, who I think is probably being extra careful to not get beat as a safety because it's not necessarily – the position he's been playing all season. So I think it, he's probably not playing with the same sort of aggression that he plays at the rover position. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's tough. I, I know a lot of people want to make it about the three down versus four down. If whether that's the difference, I'm not sure I would be, I would be interested in knowing what that data was of how, how Notre Dame has been successful with three down versus four down. I think 
people don't like the three down. And so when it doesn't work, they remember that more than the times when it does work. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it certainly hasn't been, it hasn't worked all the time. I'm not trying to say it has been great, but I'm, I'm not sure exactly if it's as skewed as people think it may be. Um, to Marie's questions about fundamentals, I think you, you can make incremental improvement um, throughout a season on a week to week basis. Um, and there can also be up and down performance performances related to those fundamentals. Like, if Notre Dame, like against North Carolina, had a bad game tackling, um, that doesn't mean that they forgot how to tackle or they weren't taught how to tackle. They just didn't execute what they know they need to do. So some of that can be reinforced this week in practice to sharpen the attention to those fundamental details. And obviously um, that'll be important against Navy and it'll be important against Virginia and throughout the rest of the season. So in terms of the coverage, I, I'm, I'll be honest in that I, I don't have a great sense of how much man versus zone coverage is being played um, to be able to speak to that. It's not something that comes natural to me when I'm watching a game and it, it's, it's a, a little bit hard, at least for me to sort of um, figure that out from some of the TV angles that we get when we rush the game. So I haven't been tracking that. So I don't, I don't know that I can make a fair judgment on whether or not they should be playing more or less zone than what they're currently doing. Next question is from data guy at the underscore Jack attack. Any chance we see Prince Collie this weekend with Bertrand worn down and white injured. I think very little chance. I, I actually asked about Prince Colley on Monday. Not not so much for the Navy game. I didn't think they'd throw him in there. But but even, I think, if Notre Dame could get some mileage out of him post-Navy, I think that would be really helpful. The, the, the vibe I'm getting is that it's just been a difficult adjustment for him, and we're probably not going to see a lot of him the rest of the season on defense beyond special teams. And I think part of it is, I mean, you never know what goes into a freshman, maybe not accelerating into that freshman year. Why do some guys do Why? Why do others don't, you know, Kyron Williams was an interesting situation in that he was homesick. He hated being away from home and that was piled on top of everything else he was trying to deal with. Um, and so we don't know that that's the case with Collie, but I think Collie's challenge was he played small ball in high school. They were very small, uh, school teams in Tennessee that he was playing. So the game speed and the scheme and everything, he was used to being the absolute best player on the field, no matter what position he was playing game after game after game. And he had to adjust to some other things. So we don't know all the adjustments he's having, but I would not count on there being a lot of relief there. Uh, certainly not this week. Yeah. And we believe he missed time because of COVID protocols as well. So yeah. that sort of certainly slows your development. Um, when, when it's, in, when you really need to be there to get that development. Um, I I'm, I'm at the point like, and I I've been at like this for a few weeks now that, I believe got Prince Cali is ready to play when they actually play him because the need, the need for him, while it is, I think high right now, I don't know that it's that much higher than it was a few weeks ago. They've needed, they've needed someone to be able to spell JD Bertrand um, for, to get him some rest at, throughout the season. And, and Brian Kelly has even expressed a want to do so, but they just haven't been able to, to get Prince Cali to that point where they feel comfortable doing that. So I don't think certainly not going to happen against Navy, um, barring um, some serious injuries, I would imagine. Um, and uh, I think, uh, 
You just have to continue being patient on, on Prince Cali, but that doesn't mean he won't be a great player in the future. Next question is from Derek Gerber at Gerbs Irish zero two. Is it just me or does it seem like Michael Mayer isn't getting targeted as much as he should when the offense gets into goal to goal situations? Could the defense defensive coverage have something to do with that? I would think the defensive coverage has something to do with boy. He, if I were the quarterback, I'd be looking for him because I feel like he would get open and he would, uh, he would catch the ball. But the thing is, he attracts a lot of attention in the red zone. So if he's getting other people open, then Notre Dame is making the right choices there. But I think, you know, at some point he'll get more involved, but you, you can't force it to him if he's getting bracketed. It, you know, you, you need to look where where there's an open man. And uh, um, I still think he'll break the record this year of touchdowns in a season for a tight end. He still needs three more. I, I still think he'll get it. Yeah, I think I think Notre Dame could be more creative in getting him the football or pay, playing into the attention that he's generating and getting someone else opportunities. Um, I, I, I think defenses are certainly very aware of where he's at um, down in the red zone. Um, and I, I think that red zone improvement is sort of the last area to come when you've, your offense has been struggling to find its identity. And I think Notre Dame has made progress in the offense with that. And I think the red zone thing is sort of still out there for them to continue to improve upon and get a better sense for that. And I think that has to include Michael Mayer in some way and um, figuring out the best way to use him. So I think uh, um, it would be wise to figure out how to get him more involved. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like or exactly how much defenses are keying on him, but there's got to be a way to get him the ball a bit more. Next question is from Shane at Shane 0607, Jeff Quinn's job status was a hot topic through the first four or five games. After the past two weeks, is his job safe? <laughs> well, I ran into somebody while I was uh, going to get my credentials Saturday who I think wanted to fire quite a few people at Notre Dame as well as coaches elsewhere. It was kind of interesting conversation. Um, here's what the way I look at it. It's not a week to week thing where Jeff's like, honey, pack up the China. I think we're going to have to uh, move. You know, it's, it's an end of the season evaluation. It's I think unfair unless it's a dire situation like Brian Van Gorder, who should have never been given a third season to begin with. I mean, that had to happen when it did four games in the season. But generally, firing a coach, a position coach in the middle of the season is ridiculous. I mean, you're not going to get any better that season. Um, and and I think in all fairness to Jeff Quinn, he deserved the time based on his track record, based on his recruiting, to go through the whole season and see what this turned into. So I'm not any more willing to give him a 10-year contract today as I was to tell him to hit hit the bricks a couple of weeks ago. So I let's just see how this season plays out. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think his his job security is fluctuating as rapidly as many fans would like to believe. I think uh, I've tried to stay consistent in my view uh, that if you believe he can develop the young linemen that are going to be counted on next year, um, then you don't let him go. He's righted the ship this season, um, but it's been with the help of an offense that's better crafted around an offensive line not needing to dominate. Um, they've put the offensive line in better positions 
um, intentionally. And I, and I, uh, I feel like it feels sort of weird, like restating my, my opinions, but like my thought going into the early part of the year was that they, they, they weren't, the offense wasn't designed well enough around an offensive line that was, wasn't good. It, it sort of was operating. mobile quarterback. Yeah. It was, it was sort of operating with the assumption that the offensive line would be fine when it wasn't fine. And they're getting, they're getting, they've gotten to that fine point now. And, and they're also designing an offense that, that makes its weaknesses on the offensive line, not as stark. So um, I think uh, there, there's some, there's a middle ground here that is, there's the, the reality more than like Jeff Quinn is, is the worst offensive line coach ever. Jeff Quinn is a genius for the, the progress that they've made in the last few weeks. So I think, uh, I think uh, like you mentioned at the end of the season, it'll be reevaluated um, with the full picture in hand. Um, and uh, no matter what he does, he can't sort of erase what happened at the beginning of the season. That, that wasn't necessarily what Notre Dame wanted or needed. Um, and that, that will remain part of the evaluation as well. Next question is from at Clutch Sports ND. The use of Tyler Buckner is awkward. I feel like he should be used more in the red zone, especially with goal-to-go situations. Am I right, wrong, or in between? I think in between. I think that the last two weeks, it felt more like a system. It felt more like a plan and that it wasn't, Oh boy, this doesn't look good. Let's put this guy in. Oh boy, this doesn't look good. Let's put this guy back in. Um, it and, and Tyler Buckner has benefited from it. Now he's only thrown four passes in the last two games, but he's completed all of them. He has the best pass efficiency rating on the team right now. I I, I like how they're using him. Um, so I don't have any complaints. Uh, you know, I and, and there's other teams that are doing that, and maybe not as well as. Notre Dame, but I, I've, you know, we saw in the Michigan game that they go back and forth between uh, McCarthy and Cade McNamara. Um, so uh, I thought Notre Dame's usage seemed to be more sensible. Again, early in the season, it seemed like a grab bag. Uh, now, to me, it seems to be very pur- purposeful, but I do like Buckner in the red zone, um, especially if your goal to go around the 10 rather than goal to go around, you know, the three. Yeah. I think clutch sports ND is more right than wrong. I, I think Tyler Buckner's running ability is certainly valuable in the red zone. And he looked pretty good in that area against Virginia tech, even throwing the football. I think he did a decent job against Virginia tech in the red zone. I'd like to see more of a commitment to Tyler Buckner in the red zone than sort of the back and forth, like if it's third and eight, we got to get him out of there. Um, it's it's just, I think like Jack Cohn did show some ability to to escape the pocket and run against North Carolina, um, and it's just, I think it's 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 harder to distinguish how much better the offense is with Tyler Buckner in there because the offense has improved so much with Jack Cohn. Um, so I think it's 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 not an easy sort of situation to sort of gauge when to put Tyler Buckner in and when not to. Um, but I, I would be interested in seeing like a, more of a dedicated red zone, red zone looks for Tyler Buckner, but I don't, you gotta like, how does that impact Jack Cohn? I mean, that that's has to be play, play into it as well. So I think it's a tough situation and certainly not the ideal one. I think he'd like to have, that's why they say two, two, when you have two quarterbacks, you don't have any quarterbacks, but I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but it's not uh, it's not the ideal situation, and I think they're trying to make the best of it as they can. 
And lastly, from Jack Quinn at JQ6008, if there is there any chance Notre Dame can get a New Year's Six bid if they lose another game, and if they don't make the New Year's Six, are they automatic to the Cheez-It Bowl, or are there other options? Um, I, I think maybe if – you know, had Virginia beaten BYU and jumped into the top 25, there might have been – an avenue for Notre Dame to get into the New Year's Six with another loss. I don't see that as an option now. Um, so if they ended up 10-2, and two, would they automatically be in the Cheez-It Bowl? The way that um, the ACC wording was this year with its bowl games, they've kind of made Tier 1 bowls where Duke's Mayo Bowl – Tax Layer Gator Bowl, Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl, the Cheez-It Bowl. There's a handful of them that are all kind of on the same line and that, and that the ACC and Notre Dame can kind of work together to see what makes sense. Now you say, well, Notre Dame's never been in the Cheez-It Bowl, not by name, but they've been in that particular bowl in Orlando several times. It's just changed. It was the Camping World Bowl last time uh, that they played there. Um, so there's a chance they would go someplace different, um, if they ended up 10 and two, if they wanted to avoid, um, or have a better matchup and, and just go a little someplace different. So they play a big 12 team if they ended up in the cheese at bowl. Yeah, I am to bowl forecasting what Eric is to uniform questions. <laughs> I just, I just defer to Eric. He knows it much better than I, and I just get, sort of dizzy when we try to figure out where they could potentially go. Just tell me where they're going when they're going there. Uh, I, I try not to get too wrapped up in it and I it just uh, <laughs> expend much energy on it. So I will defer to Eric, uh, Eric's advice on uh, where, where Notre Dame could end up if they don't uh, end up in a new year's six bowl. All right. That's it for today's episode of pot of gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week with a Navy review and a Virginia preview. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame football pregame and postgame coverage needs. <laughs>